Here is another powerful message from New Vision Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. To hear the rest of this series and others, join us at newvisionlife.com. Let me take an opportunity to say good morning to those watching online who are tuning in via the internet and watching all that's going on here at New Vision. This morning, Pastor Brady is in Buchanan, or Buchanan, depending on where you're from, preaching all three services out there, and you can text him and be like, hey, man, I thought you were going to be here. Where are you? Why did you send him? Um, It'll be okay, though. Um, And so last week, we started our new series called Do You See What I See? And what we did was we looked at... We began to look at the top news stories of 2018, and one of those was something that captivated the world. It was the Thai cave rescue, where we looked upon with urgent eyes, wondering if all of these boys and their coach was going to be rescued, and we saw that the world came together in order to rescue these young men from the perils of this cave that the water was getting higher and higher in, and it was truly something amazing to watch. And we talked about how we see the rescue that happened there, but there was a greater rescue that happened when God put on flesh, stepped into this world, and lived perfectly for 33 years to redeem a people such as us. This week, we're going to look at the royal wedding. Now, some people woke up early to watch the royal wedding. They were all excited about it. They wanted to see Prince Harry and Meghan Markle get married. They kind of shifted their day around in order to watch such a beautiful, majestic thing. Some people, not me, but some people did that. And you remember the couple. Let me remind you, it happened this spring. Check out this couple, Prince Harry and Meghan happened and over hundreds of million people woke up and watched this. Thousands of people were there to see them get married. And we saw them walk out of the chapel. And then they went to walk down and get into an open air carriage, which is how most of you left your wedding, right? And so check this out. They get in this carriage and they go around the city and it took them 25 minutes to get to Windsor Castle. And they're just waving at people. And look at all those people lying in the streets just to get a glimpse of them. It was truly extraordinary. And here's the deal. If you're anything like me, I did something that I should not have done. I start comparing my own wedding to their wedding. I was like, well, we had some chicken pasta. Take that, Megan and Harry. And I see y'all leaving in a nice horse-drawn carriage. We left in a 1997 Ford Explorer. Take that, right? It just doesn't compare. And I think the reason we love watching that is because it feels a bit like a fairy tale, doesn't it? It almost is otherworldly. We kind of get taken away in all the drama of it and all the romance of it. And we watch, but the more we watch, the more we are reminded of the fact that that is not our life. They are living a life that we haven't been invited to live. And the more we watched it, the more maybe we began to feel like an outsider looking in. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we all at some point in our lives have felt like an outsider for whatever reason. Maybe it's because we don't feel like we're where we're supposed to be in this stage of life. Maybe because we thought, man, I thought I would have more money in the bank at this point in my life. Or maybe I thought I would have more kids. Or you fill in the blank. 
but we start gathering evidence of why we are not enough and why we are outsiders. But this morning, we are going to look at this birth story of Jesus, and we're going to see that we all have been invited to become an insider. And it's not based on who you are. It's not based on where you come from. It's based on the fact that a king has invited you into a different narrative. And I think for us, as we open up scripture this morning, as we look at this lens of scripture and this narrative today, that we will see that we have been invited into something greater than we ever thought or imagined. And if we can accept this invitation and we can walk out this new calling that we have, we would truly live differently indeed. And so I invite you to pray with me before we dive into scripture. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for Christmas. Lord, thank you that Christmas just reminds us that you did an audacious thing to audaciously win us back from the enemy. And so, Father, as we read Scripture, may our eyes and our hearts be open to what you want to reveal to us. Lord, maybe for some of us, we have walked in feeling less than. Maybe we've walked in feeling that we don't measure up. Over the course of opening up your word, may we be reminded that you have changed our story and you have changed our narrative. So, Father, we love you. And may we allow your word to take root in our lives because, Lord, if it does, it truly will change the way that we live. And, Lord, we pray all these things in your awesome and amazing name. Amen. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now, some of you might be familiar with this verse, and you're thinking to yourself, Nick, in all my life, whenever I'm reading the Bible through a year, I always skip the bagats because don't nobody got time for that. I don't care that Judea begat him and Isaac begat him. Who cares? And we typically skip it. But here's what is true about Scripture. Scripture, all of it is useful for teaching and for reproach. And so we all can learn something from all of Scripture. And we're going to see that today, that even in the begats, there are some lessons that we need to learn that might change the way we walk and might change the way we live. So turn into Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start with the begats. We're going to see that Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas, and so on and so forth. And you never cared about that until this moment right here. So here we go. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pause right here. And you're thinking to yourself, Nick, there's nothing there. Well, there is a lot there. See, in that one verse found in the first chapter of Matthew, we see that our king, our father God, keeps his promises. And you might be sitting there and be like, hey, Nick, you're crazy because I didn't get that from that scripture. But in order to get that from the scripture, we have to look back a little further in the whole text of scripture. It says this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. See, the people on earth weren't just blessed through Abraham. They were blessed through Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this promise. This is just further evidence that God keeps his promise. Now, another guy's name was mentioned, David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says this. 
When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, scripture is not just talking about David's son Solomon. It is talking about Jesus who is in the line of David. God keeps his promises. And here's the good news. If God keeps his promises about this, guess what? He keeps his other promises. So we now can walk in confidence because he has fulfilled the promises and he will continue to do what he said he's going to do. Some other promises that he's going to keep that we can be reminded of this morning is found in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. God is never going to leave you or forsake you. If we can believe in that promise, we walk differently, right? Because we know that wherever God is calling us, guess what? We don't go alone. The Father goes before us and with us. This is good news. What does that change? We can walk in confidence to wherever God is calling us. Another promise found in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. That's a good amen verse. You know why? There are some sins I won't blot it out. Amen. There is some stuff we are not proud of. And what I love is in the context of Scripture, it doesn't say it marked through. It doesn't say it's slightly erased. It is blotted out. That means you can't tell what used to be there. And it says that God remembers it no more. He paid it in full. He remembers it no more. He cast it from the east is from the west. It is done with. That's a good promise. So that means that I don't have to walk in light of my sin, but I can walk in light of the grace that has been given to me. Because my sins have been blotted out, now I can live differently. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, here's the good news. Here's a promise. Jesus is coming back to get us, y'all. He has not forgotten about you. The work has been completed. So he's not coming to bear sin anymore. No, because he's already reigning over sin. But he's coming to get the saints. He's coming to get his people. And we can believe him. Why? Because he's kept every other promise. See, sometimes we go, but God, I don't know if you keep all your promises. Maybe he didn't keep the promise the way you thought he would, but he keeps all of his promises. And he will continue to keep all of his promises. And we see that through the genealogy of Jesus. He brought forth what he said he was going to do. But as you continue to read the genealogy of Jesus, there is some shady stuff going on in Jesus' genealogy. And let's read about it so we can feel better about ourselves. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Let's pause right there, okay? So I don't know if you've been hanging out in the Old Testament lately, but Abraham was a lousy husband. Some of y'all are like, what? Let me just tell you why, okay? Abraham, whenever they would go to a new city or town, he knew that his wife was beautiful. And so whenever he came to the person in charge of that city or town or region, he would tell people that Sarah wasn't his wife, wasn't his boo, but his sister. He'd go, yeah, yeah, she looked good. And that's my sister right there. Guys, think about this for a second. 
Could you imagine meeting somebody for the first time and going, hey, this is my sister and that's your wife? When you get in the car, you getting cut. Let me just tell you that right now. Like, you think you've had some long rides home? Tell somebody that that's not your wife. Oh, you don't want to get in the car. You're like, you go home by yourself. I'll get an Uber, right? But here's the deal. Abraham didn't only do that once. He did it twice. Like, could you imagine the second time? Sarah's like, oh, oh, we're going to do this again. Did, did I not show you what happens when you do this? Abraham was a lousy husband. The reason he did that is because he didn't know if the leader of that land or kingdom would kill him. He was afraid. And so in order, instead of standing up, what did he do? He's like, hey, Sarah, just pretend you're my sister. It's not going to, it's not good. It gets worse. Here we go. Isaac, the father of Jacob. If you know anything about Jacob, you know this. He was a liar. That's what he was known for. He was a swindler. He was the guy that you ask, hey, Jacob, what's the weather outside? And he say, Sonny, you go check anyways. You're like, Alexa, what's the weather, right? That's what you do. Because you couldn't believe anything he said. So, so far in the genealogy of Jesus, here's what we have. We have a lousy husband and we have a liar and it gets better. Let's go. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. So maybe you haven't read your Old Testament lately. Here's the thing you need to know about Judah. Judah promised one of his sons to Tamar. They got married, and Tamar wanted to be a mother. She prayed for a child. She really wanted one of Judah's sons to be able to provide for her a son. But what happened was Judah's son died before he could do that. And so Judah gives her another son. He ends up dying before he can provide a child for her. And Judah goes, all right, listen, Tamar, I don't know if there's something in the water or what's going on, but I'm not giving you any more of my sons. Tamar goes, that's cool. I'm going to figure out a way to have a son in your line. So what does she do? She dresses up like a prostitute and seduces Judah because she heard in the grapevine that he liked prostitutes. Sorry, we got PG-13 real quick. He sleeps with her and he decides that, hey, I don't know what happened, but you need to be stoned because you're, you're giving birth and you're pregnant out of wedlock. And Tamar goes, well, I'm going to show you this robe. And whoever the robe belongs to is the father of my child. Could you imagine being at Thanksgiving watching this go down? So he goes, fine. She pulls out the robe, and guess whose robe it is? Judas. And she's like, say something now, Judah. Say something. <laughs> yeah, you can't make this up. Like, talk about the awkward of the feeling. Like, you don't know where to look. Let me just look at my shoes. Praise God, right? This is in the line of Jesus, and it keeps going. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amidab. Amidab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Let's pause right here for a second, too. Do you know what Rahab's profession was? Prostitute. How did you make money, Rahab? Well, you know, I, I do a thing here, do a thing there. That's what I do. What? Because you wouldn't think that the Savior of the world would have a genealogy like this. But yet there's a reason why Matthew is revealing this to us. Because Matthew himself was an outsider. 
He was an outcast. He was a tax collector that was Jewish. He basically turned on his own people. So he's writing the genealogy of Jesus going, listen, I know I'm an outsider, but also in the line of Jesus, there were other outsiders as well. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, which is, if you follow that family line back, it is gone, it goes back to an adulterous relationship that Lot had with somebody. Goes on to say this, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. See, here's the deal. Matthew could have stopped there and been like, hey, David's the father of Solomon, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why is this significant? Well, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. And remember, God called David a man after his own heart. So Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was one of his closest men. And he was out on the battlefield fighting. But David decided that he wasn't going to go off to war. He was going to hang out at, the, at his kingdom, in the, just doing what he wanted to do. And one night he goes and he just looks over his kingdom because where he was could see the whole nation. And what does he find when he goes out on his rooftop? A woman bathing. And what does David do? He goes, I need to meet that girl. Not because of her personality. Not because he wanted to find out more about her likes and dislikes. No, David saw her and it said he lusted after her. So he calls her, calls her to his temple, his place. And what happens? They lie together. She leaves, she cleanses herself. And David, instead of confessing, what does he do? He picks up the shovel and keeps digging like we must do. And he goes, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call Uriah off the battlefield. I'm going to have him lay with his wife so that my hands are clean. But Uriah is such a good dude. Uriah goes, hey, King David, there is no way I can go lay with my wife when my men are out fighting the battle for our kingdom and our nation. And David's like, okay, that's cool. So what does David do? He writes Uriah's death notice and sends it back in his hand to the front lines so that when the fighting is the fiercest, they take a step back so that Uriah will be killed. So not only do we have adultery, but now we have murder. I'm telling y'all this. Just read your Bible and you can find some drama. And this guy, King David, is in the line of Jesus. Jesus' family tree was full of outsiders. They were full of people that didn't measure up. They were full of people that didn't get it right. They were full of people that made wrong choices regularly they were full of all kinds of people and here's what's interesting in Jewish culture your genealogy was like your resume I'm telling you you don't want to turn this resume in well I have some prostitutes I have some liars I have a really bad husband this does not speak highly of you and here's the deal like lately on tv I've seen a lot of advertisement for 23andMe y'all watch this you've seen these can I be honest with you I'm nervous about doing this because I'm not sure what we're going to find. Like, because if we go back and you got a cotton swab of my DNA, Lord knows what's in my, you know, Lord knows. And I'm afraid of what I may find out. But here's what I love. Jesus wasn't afraid of his genealogy. Why? Because he knew he was the great redeemer. And we read this and go, man, that's so shady. Look at all that. We know we have a place with Jesus because look at his family line. And here's the thing, as we look at the royals, we go, man, they 
are just otherworldly. They are royalty. But there's some shadiness going on in the royal family. See, Prince Harry one time thought it would be a good idea to go to a Halloween party as Hitler. I'm about to give y'all some free information right now. This could change your life. If you have an opportunity to be anybody for Halloween, don't choose Hitler. It is not a good idea. It will not go over well with other people. Don't do it. What's wrong with him? Megan had been married before, and she is what the royal family wouldn't call marriage material. But yet, we see these people who are flawed. We see these people who really, in and of themselves, are outsiders, but yet they have still been made royalty because of their bloodline and because of the invitation into marriage. And as we think about that, we think even more so about how Jesus changes everything. He changes and redeems where we come from and what we have done. It says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he goes, listen, I recognize that I am an outsider, but because of what Jesus has done, I've been invited to be an insider. God used ugly outsiders to bring about his beautiful son. God is the best at redemption. God is amazing at redeeming broken things and making them new again. God saves by his mercy, not our merit. Let me read that again. God saves by his mercy, not our merit. Because for some of us in this room, we feel like we're doing it pretty well. Like, I'm pretty awesome. Like, I am pretty great. I'm not nearly as bad as that guy over there. Or I haven't done nearly as many things as she has done. But can I tell you, compared to Jesus, you don't measure up. But on the flip side, some of us go, man, I have done too much wrong in order for Jesus to love me. Can I tell you, let me remind you this. God saves by his mercy, not our merit. None of us deserve the love of Jesus. None of us. What I love about the gospel is it puts us all on an even playing field. We are all broken in need of redemption, and Jesus is the only one that offers that to us. Is not based on your merit, is not based on your brokenness. It's always been based on his mercy and his grace. David Platt says this quote, and it's an amazing quote. He says this Why are these names included in the line that leads to Christ? For the exact same reason that your or my name is included in the line that leads from Christ, solely by the sovereign grace of God. Were it not for his grace. Praise be to God that he delights in saving immoral, sinful outcasts. That's a strong quote. See, I'm going to give David Platt credit maybe one or two more times, and then that's going to be my quote. I'm just telling you all that right now. But it's so beautiful because David said, listen. We look at this, we look at this riffraff group that was in Jesus' genealogy, and we go, why are they there? The same reason we get to be in the line of Jesus that comes after him. 
Because we have been all in need of grace and mercy and salvation. We all of us are. And this next truth, I'm telling you, if we could get this truth and let this truth direct our path, it would change the way we live our lives. And it's this. No matter who you are or what you've done, there is room in his family for you. Let me say it again. No matter who you are or what you have done, there is room in his family for you. We all have been invited to the table of the king. Every last one of us. And for some of us, we go, but Nick, I don't believe you. And I'm going to have to say this, and this is going to be kind of strong. Just because you don't believe me doesn't make it any less true. Maybe it is time you have a change in perspective and see that you have been invited to the table of a king through the blood of Jesus. And you might go, but Nick, I don't feel worthy. You're not worthy. It's okay because you're offered a seat at the table anyways. But Nick, I haven't done enough good stuff. None of us can because we can't earn a free gift. But yet you are still invited to the table of a king. It says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What is Paul trying to get the church at Galatia to see? He's trying to get them to see that it doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter the things you have done. If you have Jesus, it changes everything. And the same holds true for us today. If you have Jesus, you're not just your color, you're not just your size, you're not just your past. You are something new through the blood of Jesus. And we sometimes look at Scripture and be like, man, I feel like Jesus is telling me the same thing over and over and over again. You know why that is? Because we are hard-headed individuals, amen? God will display the truth. He will prove the truth. He will reveal the truth. He will tell us the truth, and yet we will write our own truth and be like, well, yeah, that's good, but. Guys, there is no but after Jesus. Like, it's a period there. You don't get to put a comma. There's not more. Jesus has told you who you are through his completed work on the cross. Maybe it is time we start believing him. Maybe it's time to believe that maybe there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, no male or female, but we all are one in Christ Jesus. That is our chief identity is, who, is what Jesus has done. That is who you are. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That is who you are. Yeah, y'all can clap for that because that's truth. <laughs> Christmas is your invitation to become the ultimate insider. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that none of us were invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding, right? I'm going to just, and I would go on further to say that none of us were invited to William and Kate's wedding. But here's a picture of the invitation. And there's something kind of just, I don't know, awe-inspiring about this invitation. Like, let's just, let, the first part is just good. The Lord Chamberlain is commanded by the queen to invite you. What? I mean, that just sounds otherworldly. 
Like that just sounds like something amazing. Why? It's not just because it's paper and ink. It's because of who sends the invitation. And Jesus, through his life, through his death, has issued an invitation to be a part of his father's family to each and every one of us. See, Megan and Prince Harry, when they, their lives got merged together, she became a part of the royal family. Their family got merged together. That means who she formerly was has changed and is not any longer as important because of who she is now. See, when I issued the invitation for Laura, my wife, to live the rest of her life with me and to navigate the ups and downs of life with me, on our wedding day, her last name changed to person. She was now finally a person. My last name is person, everybody. Some of y'all are like, what, what happened? Okay. But she was officially a person. Now going, <laughs> that's funny. That's so funny. So good. Thank you, Lord. Anyways. But now everything she does, she's walking from a position, I'm going to say it again, of a person. That's who she is. Because our lives have been merged together. And if we accept the invitation of Jesus paid in full, sacrifice on the cross, we have been changed by now who we are because of who he is. Isaiah 62.5 says this. For as, young, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. See, sometimes we want to look at the church and go, man, the church is not necessarily what it's supposed to be. That is true. Why? Because the church is made up of flawed individuals. But do you know that the church doesn't get her value because we are so valuable, but because of the groom's ascribed worth that he has given to us? Because, see, when the groom looks at us, he sees his bride that is worthy to be rescued and that is worthy to be married because of what he has done. And I love the fact that the groom ascribes the value. See, I could have got married to Laura and some people could have said, Nick, why do you want to marry her? Now I would have punched them in the throat, but they could have said that. But here's the deal. What they think didn't matter because I ascribed value to my wife. I felt as if she was worthy. And so what did I do? I pursued her, I loved her, and I won her. And that is what our father does. Because you are a bride, you have been ascribed the worth of the groom. Listen to that. Because sometimes we think about this bridegroom coming to get the bride, and guys are like, I don't even know what that means. But here's what it means. It means that you move from an outsider to an insider because of your Father in heaven who has pursued you. And he paid the price in full for us to be redeemed. Let's finish up with this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Can we pause right there for a second? Uh, sometimes scripture is funny to me because it said that Joseph had decided in his heart that he was going to divorce Mary quietly. And then the angel of the Lord shows up and says, hey, um, Joseph, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to marry that girl. And Joseph wakes up from the dream and goes, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'm going to marry Mary. You better marry Mary. If you don't, you don't want to drop kick. You better be obedient, bro. And so all of a sudden, because of the new data that was put on the table, Joseph decides that, you know what, I'm going to marry this girl. Verse 25, love this verse. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Why do I love that verse so much? Let me tell you why. Because, see, the genealogy of David and Abraham flowed through Joseph's line and genealogy. It didn't flow through Mary's line. And so when Joseph named Jesus, Jesus became the son of Joseph. That's a big deal. Jesus was adopted in to the genealogy of all those that went before him. And you might go, but Nick, I don't see that. See, when a father named a child, it showed ownership. It shows that he is mine. He is of me. He is from me. He shares everything that I share. I give him everything. And I love that in the context of Scripture, we see that we have been adopted in through the blood of Jesus to the family of God. So you might go, well, Nick, I don't feel adopted in. Can doesn't matter. You're adopted in if you said yes to the invitation. So what does that mean for us? It means this. We who have been on the outside have now become insiders that live like the prince or princes of the king that we are. The gospel is not about behavior modification. It's about an identity swap. It's not just about us being better, but it means that because of what Jesus has done and he has made us royalty, we live as royalty. Why? Because the evidence says that we are. The evidence says that we have been invited to be sons and daughters of the king. And because we have a great invitation, guess what? We live differently. Not so we could check stuff off of a box, not just so we could look better because we are new. You have been changed by the blood of Jesus. Maybe today is the day where we agree with God and live like princes and princesses of the king. And I'm telling you this. If we could get this, this changes the way we live. Because for most of us, our identity is found in this. We say, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Can I tell you that is not who you are? You are a child of the king. And you might go, but Nick, no, listen, you are a child of the king. Why? Because that's what God calls you. And when you pay the price, you get to decide what you do with it, right? When you have paid the cost, you get to tell whoever you pay for who they are. And Jesus paid for you in full. So guess what? Let's believe the king. 
Because I want you to do a survey of your life. You haven't been very good at directing your own path. You haven't been very good at living up to the standard you have set for yourself. So now let us, because we have accepted the invitation from the king, let us live in that way. And here is also what changes. Not only do we have an identity swap, but we also begin to treat people as sons and daughters of the king as well. Because we realize they have been invited to the table as well. And maybe they have not yet realized that they're a son or daughter of the king, but we get to display to them what it looks like to be a son or a daughter of the king. We don't do that because our king is worthy of us living differently for. We love our brother. Why? Because we have been loved so well by our king, and we just want to demonstrate that love of the king because we are his ambassadors and we are his sons and daughters. And so we want to invite you to the table as well. Like if we can get it about what our identity is rooted in and live out of that identity, we live differently. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather live as a son or daughter, as a king, than to live in this broken, nick in charge kind of a life. Because that life doesn't produce fruit. But when I agree with my father, he brings life, he brings fruit, and it changes everything. So I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in here and you need to accept the initial invitation from the king to be a part of his family. Maybe you've never before accepted the completed work on the cross that Jesus paid in full for you. And maybe today is the day where you say yes to that invitation. And you might be sitting there and go, but Nick, I don't understand it all. Nobody does. But maybe in the best way you know how, you say yes to Jesus today. Maybe your invitation is to take that next step of obedience, which we believe is baptism, to go public with your faith. Maybe the invitation that you need to step in today is to be a part of a small group or host a small group. I don't know where you are, but I know this, that everybody has a next step. And the most important step we can take is believing our Father that he has kept his promises and that he has redeemed us through the blood of his holy son, Jesus. If you would, bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for what you do. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you didn't come just to make us better, but you came to make us new. Jesus, thank you that you have invited us to bear your name and to be your ambassadors and to reflect you in all that we do. Jesus, may we accept that invitation. May we live differently because we are different. Jesus, no matter what it is, that's our next step. May we be willing to take that next step and fix our eyes on you, not the brokenness that lies behind us, but on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, thank you that you give each And every one of us, an invitation to sit at your table, not based on our merit, but based on your mercy. May we accept our seat and live differently in light of whose table we dine at. So, Father, we love you. Father, we thank you. And, Father, we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this message, we'd like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. We meet at 820, 940, and 11 a.m. If you would like more information or would like to watch or listen to more of our services, 
please visit us online at newvisionlive.com. This broadcast is brought to you by New Vision Baptist Church, where our mission is guiding people to lives of gospel transformation.